Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What is your practice in your daily life to calm yourself down? What is your practice to bring yourself back to center in daily life? We can't expect to be on the river in a high stress environment and then you know, with a snap of a finger, all of a sudden be skilled at calming ourselves down. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Anna Levesque. Anna is an author and adventure coach and a leading expert on kayak instruction for women and yoga for paddling. Named one of the most inspirational paddlers alive by Canoe and Kayak magazine, she's been continuously heralded as a champion for women accessing paddle sports. In this episode, we talk about Anna's entry into the world of kayaking, her journey to becoming a river guide and the successes, failures and highs and lows of that process. We talk about mental health, resilience, grit and emotion and discuss the impact that misogyny had on her life and career. I speak to Anna about her years as a competition kayaker and the pros and cons of that life versus a life of kayaking white water in wilder places. This conversation is a real exploration of mental resilience in challenging conditions and environments, and we explore in detail how to manage, control and overcome fear, and how engaging with what can be perceived as negative emotions is all part of the learning process. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Anna Levesque. Cool. So if you could please introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Anna Levesque and I call myself a mental agility coach. And by mental agility, I mean the ability to move from a place of disempowerment to a place of empowerment. And the vehicle through which I find is most effective to do this work, because it's also my passion, is whitewater kayaking. And I've been whitewater kayaking for 30 years now. And when I started out, I actually, I started out working in the, ra- in the kitchen of a ra- whitewater rafting company near my parents' house. And it was not glamorous. And the guides loved to give me a hard time. They never thought for a moment 
They actually called me Kitchen Wench. That was my nickname. They never thought for a moment that I would start to actually kayak or raft guide. But the first time I went on a rafting trip and I saw the little people in their little plastic colorful boats and I experienced the river and I experienced the joy and how much fun folks were having on the river. I just knew there was just something inside of me. It's like, wow, this is for me. I want to do this. And so when I graduated university, I had my parents and dropped me off at a whitewater rafting company in West Virginia, told them I wasn't going to pursue law school, but I was going to become a raft guide instead, much to their dismay. They thought at the time that for sure, or they hoped it was a phase, like, oh, it's a phase she's going through. She's going to change her mind. Uh, but I really felt like these were my people. This was my thing. And I, I was really became so inspired and enamored with the river and with the river community. And there are so many metaphors for life. When you spend time on the river, when you learn to navigate the river, when you learn to read the water. And, uh, so to me, and there was no greater mental challenge than to face fear all the time because courage is being afraid and doing it anyway, right? Taking that action anyway. And whitewater kayaking is uh, one of the best ways to build mental agility, especially because the water, unlike climbing, I've done a little bit of climbing, you know, I mountain bike also, the trail isn't moving underneath you. The rock isn't moving underneath you, but the river is always moving underneath you. And so not only are you managing yourself, you're also uh, needing to work with the river, develop a relationship with the river at moment to moment. And so I really love that in terms of, of mental agility. And I do it because I grew up with I guess I could say a lack of confidence and it's something that, that has, I guess, plagued me is the word that comes to mind. And so, you know, we teach what, what we need the most. And so by teaching mental agility, teaching whitewater kayaking, I get to challenge myself over and over and over. And, uh, and so, so I, my initial company let's see, where, where do I go from there? From whitewater rafting, I did it all the time. I loved it. So I raft guided around the world and I just wanted to be good at kayaking. I used uh, whitewater rafting as a way to pay for my kayaking habit because if I was on the river guiding, I was learning the river and then on my days off, I could whitewater kayak. And because I was doing it all the time, I decided to try out for the Canadian freestyle team. I'm originally from Canada. I now live in, in the US. Uh, and I made the Canadian freestyle team. And so I competed internationally for several years, both in freestyle kayaking and extreme racing. Extreme racing is like racing over waterfalls and, and more difficult rivers. And from there, while I was competing, I noticed that women, the my colleagues we would kind of make the same mistakes, so to speak, or struggle with the same maneuvers or different body positions. And also when I was paddling really difficult whitewater at the time, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so it was very common to be the only woman with a group of guys paddling. And, and in my experience, it was not very confidence inspiring. 
And so I would start talking with my colleagues and there were always stories of, yeah, I was so frustrated. I was, I was in almost in tears, but I didn't want to see the guys. I didn't want the guys to see me cry. So I pulled over, you know, did what I needed to do and then went, got back with the guys or, you know, a lot of stories about females at the highest level of the sport, feeling embarrassed, not feeling like they could show up just as they are, um, needing to always impress or be like their male colleagues who set the paradigm. And that really bothered me because of, because I also felt that way. And so I, back in 2004, I released an instructional DVD called Girls at Play. I was in my late twenties and it was, yes, I did. It was instructional for the freestyle part, but really what I wanted to do was put out the female experience, just little tidbits of what it was like to be a female in the sport. And so from that, that video was, I, people have described it as groundbreaking. I mean, it's a DVD now, so, you know, it's old, (laughs) just like, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50. So, um, but it was groundbreaking at the time. And it was controversial because in the video, I said, one of the, the little modules of the video is it's okay to cry on the river. It's just water coming out of your eyes. It's just about frustration. And there was a lot of pushback at the time. Like, it is not okay to cry in the river. You cannot show emotion in these high-level environments. And so that was really interesting. And I did a tour, an instructional tour around the country. And, you know, women were showing up in droves. And so that's when I knew this resonates. It might not resonate with everyone, but this is resonating and this is important work. And so it's evolved. Since then, I'm also an Ayurvedic health coach, which is a sister science to yoga. I'm a yoga teacher. And so now my company is called Mind Body Paddle because they're all interrelated. There's a lot so to that's me. That. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to start. I mean, I'm, I've said this quite a bit over the past six months for the podcast. I'm always conscious of not just having this conversation with women and I'm trying to have it with more men. But I think you brought up, you know, the differences between the genders. And I, I was going to ask because of one of the earliest things you said about being labeled the kitchen wench, you know, does that come from a place of misogyny or compassion or both? And how did that affect you? At the time, I think it came from a place of misogyny, not meaning to be misogynistic, if that makes sense. It's like banter, right? And And I get it. And how it affected me was like, I had to pretend like it was funny, but it wasn't funny because there was a little bit of a derogatory, like, Oh, it's kitchen wench. And, and some of the guides actually, you know, would not all of them, a few of them would give me a hard time, like complain about whatever sandwich I made for them, you know, or, you know, whatever it was. And so yeah, it made it harder. And I, I, I personally experienced that throughout, especially in the early days of my paddling career of just kind of having to suck up when jokes were made and they're not that funny. Or, you know, I was told at one point paddling on a really challenging river, uh, you know, one of the guys said, cause I was, I had decided to walk one of the rapids. I didn't want to run it. And also I have paddled a lot of difficult whitewater and 
I also experience a lot of fear. So I'm not one of, I'm not, I've never been a paddler who paddles the hardest of the hard and just goes for it. I have good skill and I get scared. And so I remember choosing to walk a rapid and the comments made to me were like, well, you better be at the bottom by the time we're done running this rapid. Like that is your responsibility. If you're walking, you need to be at the bottom by the time we're done because you don't, you, you know, you can't hold us up. And (laughs) so then I have a lot of pressure to like get myself around. So already I'm nervous. And, um, now I feel like the group doesn't really care about me. (laughs) You know, they care about themselves. We're in a wilderness environment. And so you can imagine, you know, so much stress, so stress level spikes. And that is, so, you know, when I teach, I'm also an instructor trainer educator for the American Canoe Association for whitewater kayaking. And and so I, I train instructors and instructor trainers. And we talk a lot about you know, are you allowing someone to be in a growth mindset or in a, or are you putting them in a survival into survival mode where they can't learn? And I think that, you know, at the time it was, if you're choosing to be with us, you've got to be like us or we're going to give you a hard time or you don't belong. And I get it like to a certain degree in the wilderness, right? We do, we do have to set boundaries, right? Because the sun goes down and you you do have to have a certain skill. And at the same time, if you are, if you are saying yes to someone joining your group, then you are working as a group. You have accepted that you are working as a group. And I think at the time, and I think this unfortunately still happens in the outdoor industry and in whitewater kayaking, although less, that folks will invite fo- invite people in, but then they really have an agenda for what they want to do. And they're just like, yeah, if you want to come with me, you have to be like me. <laughs> and that is just not inclusive. It's not good for the sport. And, you know, if we want folks to come into the sport and enjoy what we enjoy and share what we do, then, you know, we don't want to be putting folks into survival mode, mentally or physically. It's also not how you create a high-functioning team, right? I think that's exactly. I think about that a lot. You know, are you a group of individuals or are you a high-functioning team? Yeah. Um, and how much, what effect and impact does this have on you? Because, you know, you're still here, you're operating at an elite level with multiple different hats on. You could have just quit and thought, this isn't for me. Yeah, I think that... I didn't quit because I always felt like I had something to say, like I could do things differently. And I guess I'm stubborn also. And I, I had a passion for it. So ultimately how my career has unfolded is I've always followed my passion. That's been number one, even though I've had many people be like, well, you need to pay for this and you you need to get a job. And if you don't get a job that pays this, you know, blah, 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 you can't do this. And for me, for some reason, I was like, well, that may be true, but I'm going to try it this other way because I love what, what I'm doing. And, and then I get, I, 
I think there were, so here's why I think I didn't quit. I think there were people, one or two individuals at each point in my life who did, who I did feel supported by, and they made the difference for me, even though maybe like the wider group was more harsh. There was always like at the rafting company, there were a few, for instance, the, the head of the kayak school happened to be a woman. And she said, you know, every time, uh, when you have a day off, come shadow my, my kayak courses so you can learn. And so I was on that. And then when I was doing high level paddling, there were always a few, few of the, I have to say it was the men who were very compassionate to me and who encouraged me. They didn't necessarily stand up for, for me in front of the group always, And I don't know if they did or not when I wasn't there, but they always would take me aside and say, Hey, try this. Or they would give me a helping hand or they, even if it was a, a compassionate glance or smile that helped me out. And so I always had people. And then I had a friend who I remember this distinctly. We were on a bike ride in West Virginia, like after raft guiding. And I said, I don't know why I love this so much. Like, I don't know why I keep, <laughs> you know, it's so important to me. And she said, I think you have something to say. And I think you have something to do here that's beyond kayaking or raft guiding. And that always stuck with me. And that became kind of a guiding light. Like, what do I want to say? What change can I can I affect? How can I make it better for for people like me coming up so that they don't have to go through what, I experienced. And that's why I started teaching early on in my career. I really was focused on empowering women in whitewater and providing a space where women could show up just as they are, whatever their body type, whatever their mental agility level. Uh, and, and, and I would work with them and, and more and build community so that they understood that they weren't alone. Right. Because those people at every step of the way, they helped me uh, remember that I wasn't alone, that I could do it. Yeah. Do you think things have changed? Obviously, you know, the problem's not fixed. We're a long way away from that. I'm pretty sure of that already, but has it changed? Well, it's changed. There are a lot more women paddling. And now across the country, there are, and also in the UK, there are, I know the British canoeing is, has a She Paddles uh, program right? So there are, there are women, other women stepping up, taking on these leadership roles, having something to say, building community with other women. You know, here I run an event called Women's Paddle Fest. There's a, an event called the Green River Takeover. There are events out West as well. So women are creating spaces for other women to show up. There are also organizations like Diversify Whitewater, uh, who are, uh, organizing and promoting events for folks of color to show up uh, and creating an environment, a welcoming environment for everyone. And I think that's really important. So what I've seen change is leaders um, other than white males (laughs) or white cisgender males are showing up in the space and saying, I can do this. I'm going to organize and create spaces for other folks to show up. So I think it's, it's, it's growing. Uh, or changing. The other thing I'll say, what I'm really excited about is that young women who are athletes or leaders in the sport 
in their 20s are starting to push back against the media and are, you know, I, I just hear women having more courage to publicly say, this isn't okay. Why aren't you, uh, why aren't there more photos of women? Why isn't there more diverse stories? Why aren't there more diverse stories being told? Or I was treated like this at an event. This isn't okay. Right. And, and that's different because I remember in the early 2000s, I was at a press conference at a big event in Colorado with the press and the conversation started going towards uh, images in the media. And of course, in whitewater kayaking, we have a problem because all the cool images are people going over gigantic waterfalls, doing the most extreme things. And that is not how a sport grows. I, I, I have a lot of respect for folks who do that. And it is an important part. We want folks who are pushing the limits because it is, that is their passion. And, and that's awesome. And we can have other images as well, right? Of that appeal to the general public or not maybe the general public, but more welcoming. And so, and also I was talking about the over-sexualization of female athletes at the time. You know, there was, there were ads running with uh, female kayakers in like little outfit, sexy outfits at a bar with, it, it just to me didn't make sense. And after that, I was called the feminazi of the kayaking world by one of my colleagues. He's like, well, we're used to that from you, Anna, because you're just the, the feminazi of the kayaking world. And I was like, what? You know, it, so <laughs> I think sometimes getting called that was, or things like that was demoralizing, but at the same time, I'm not one to back down from a challenge. <laughs> and so, you know, it is, um, now that I'm hearing more women, younger women, you know, uh, using their social media platforms to, uh, to spread awareness. I'm, I'm grateful that I was brave enough to do that at the time, no matter what I got labeled. And what I kept, what I would say to colleagues is you can criticize me all you want, say that I'm too soft, say that, um, call me a feminazi, whatever you want to do. I'm going to continue doing my work. And as long as women are showing up, then I, and I'm making a difference for them, then I'm going to continue doing the work. And as soon as women stop showing up, it means my work is done. I'm not relevant. Fine. I'll, I'll do something different, but until then, and as long as I'm making a difference, I'm going to show up and, and be a change maker. Yeah, and I wonder how much of this is men either having their own coping strategies that they think should be applied to everybody else or their own ways of functioning, their own gender differences, or just being stuck in their ways. I mean, exactly the same thing has happened in the mountaineering world. You know, and this whole idea of like, you can't cry on a river. I mean, I've just spent three weeks crossing Iceland with three guys with spinal cord injuries who are typical alpha males in so many ways who were crying all the time. And it's their, their, their injuries have led them in a really positive way to become more emotionally aware, more vulnerable, in touch with their emotions and feelings. Like they're not crying because they've been weakened by their injuries. They're crying right. because they're more emotionally stable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess it would be interesting to ask you like how much you think, and there's no wrong answer to this, how much you think there is a gender difference that plays into the way we cope in these extreme environments. 
Yeah, I'm glad you you asked that question because one thing that I've had to reflect on actually in my career is that in the beginning, because I was having these conversations with my female colleagues, the only vulnerability stories that I was hearing was from my female colleagues. I never once heard any of my male colleagues talk about being scared or showing emotion, nor did I ever see that. Um, in fact, like sometimes you do even, even positive emotion, you know, I remember going over a waterfall and I lost my pa- a 30 foot waterfall on a difficult river and I lost my paddle and I flipped over and I did a hand roll at the bottom and got my paddle back. And I was so excited. Like, wow, that was a, like, I'm so grateful. That was awesome. And I looked to two of my male colleagues who were sitting right there. I said, did you see that? And they were like, yeah, yeah. And it was just judgment instead of celebrating like, wow, because in that, wow, you coped with that really well. Like you got yourself up. That was awesome. So that can also be demoralizing by the way. And that's what I like to set up in my experiences is, is acknowledging people, acknowledging people when they do awesome stuff. We, I don't feel like as humans, we do that enough. Coming back to your question is that, so I would only hear vulnerability stories from women. So to me, it, it occurred for me as a gender gap. What I've discovered after, you know, 20 years is that I think I was wrong about that because now there is space for men in my experience to be more vulnerable. And I actually have male clients and male clients who come to me saying, I want to improve my confidence on the river. I want to improve my confidence in life. I love your mental agility approach, your, your mind body paddle approach. And, and, and so I think that I've had to grapple with that. I labeled it as male, female, but I don't think that that's very accurate. I think it is more, more individual and across genders. And of course we have the gender spectrum. So across people, um, and I, like you said, the alpha males, I think these adventure sports will attract especially in the beginning, a lot of those personalities and types. And so then that is the paradigm. But as the, as the sports grow or as new people come in, we see things through a different lens. And the other thing I've grappled with is that I've been empowering women. Like I empower women. And yet when I looked around, it's women who look like me. And that's the other thing that I grapple with is how am I not reaching out to women who don't look like me (laughs) and how can I reach out and how can I create a more diverse community and how can I serve a more diverse clientele? So I think these are, it's subtle. And I think learning, always having that self-awareness, self-awareness, self-assessment, that's so important in the, on the river, but also in life. How can I do things better? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Obviously, I don't know you very well, but we've not at all spoken about personal kayaking outside of the kind of brief introduction you gave. And it seems like so much of what you do, who you are, you know, professionally, personally, is centered around empowering others, inspiring others, enabling others. Has it totally taken over or do you still just love going kayaking because you love kayaking? I do still love to go kayaking because I love kayaking. I do. uh, I have to say that I 
have less personal days on the river now than I used to, for sure. In my 20s and 30s, especially early 30s, I was competing, paddling, traveling around the world, paddling for myself, getting better. And I still, I still love to do that. Like I love both on the freestyle side, working on tricks or, and, and going out and just having so much fun. My husband and I met um, on the competition circuit. So we share that passion for paddling together and um, then on the river as well. And I will say that I get a lot of when I'm on the river with my clients, I can push myself to continue to hone my skills. So there in, in whitewater, we have this saying, practice hard moves in easy water. And right. So practice your hard moves in a low consequence environment. That's how you get better. That's how you grow confidence. And so even if I'm on a class two river with a client, I can practice my hard moves in easy water and really hone my skills and refine so that when I get back on a class four or five river with my friends, with my husband, then I feel, I feel good because I'm, you know, yeah, I might be bouncing around a little bit, you know, not, you know, at the level that I once was, and I was paddling all the time at that level. Uh, the most important part is the enjoyment. And I would say that I, I love class four now, you know, I'm not paddling class five for myself anymore. I really, to me, it has always been about the river, connecting with nature, connecting with the flow and connecting with the people I'm paddling with. Yes. At one time it was about getting better, higher level, higher level, like checking it off. Now it's really, what is the quality of my experience? And for me, I, for me personally, I don't need to be pushing the the envelope, um, all the time, uh, or at all, I can be refining my skills and having fun and making the most out of what I am paddling. And when it comes to that connection to nature and that wilderness experience and connection to others, what is it about kayaking and moving water that does it for you rather than rock climbing or mountain biking or hiking? Mm-hmm. It's, I love the dance with the water and I love, yeah, there, uh, there is something about the water, the flow, right? Being in the flow or a flow state. And I know that again, and it's the present moment awareness. And, and there is one of the, the times that I have climbed, it is very meditative. You are in the moment. And I think with the water, because it's moving under you, there is something about reading the water moment to moment and going with the flow and you just get these moves, kind of like these carving turns that you can do and your, your connection with the boat. And then uh, knowing that if I put my edge this way, I'm going to turn just like this and the water takes you, but it's not scary. It's like a total relationship building with the water. And then I just love to be floating down and have moments where I'm, I'm looking. I can take a break so I'm not having to focus on everything I'm doing, take a break and just look around and notice how beautiful things are. Right now, the mountain laurel are blooming here in Western North Carolina. And there are these beautiful flowers and they're all over the place on the river. And it's just so joyful to be able to take in the beauty as I'm going also. 
So I don't know. It's hard to put to words, honestly, but I just love the flow. I love being in the flow and also knowing how to get out of the flow. So part of being on the river is also, you can't just stop in a river. You can't, you know, like on a mountain bike, you break and you stop. Well, on the river, you have to catch an eddy to stop. You can't, because the flow is going to continue. And so learning where, where you can stop, you have to develop the skills to catch an eddy. So yeah, I think it's the relationship with the river. And what a beautiful thing to actually understand the river. It's not about conquering the river, right? Having power over the river because the river is always more powerful. It's about cultivating that relationship with nature. And I think that for our health and well-being, it's so important to cultivate a relationship with nature, whatever that, that is for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Which brings us on nicely, I guess, to this kind of mind-body paddle, you know, and connecting the yoga and everything else. How does this all fit together and where did it all come from? Yeah. So I think I started practicing yoga when I was competing because I had a really hard time getting out of my own way. Uh, I had a really hard time. Freestyle kayaking is a little bit like showing off. You're in a, you're in a wave and you're doing tricks and there are judges judging you. That is really hard for me. I grew up ski racing, alpine ski racing, and that was easier because you're moving down the hill. There's a time you know, getting into a, a wave and knowing that people are judging you is to me, I don't know, very difficult. And I had a hard time removing the, what are people saying? What are people thinking? Am I good enough? Versus just thinking, just focusing on what I needed to do next. And yoga really helped me with that. And then setting a routine really helped me with that. And, and so the yoga was definitely a mental agility practice for me that also has had a lot of physical benefits. Right now I'm working a lot because everyone wants instructor training in May. So, and I can feel it in my body and without yoga and also physical, regular physical therapy, massage, chiropractic, I don't know that my body would be holding up as well as, as it is. And I'm grateful. So taking care of the body also takes care of the mind and taking care of the mind also takes care of the body. So we know now science is very clear that it's all connected. There's no separation. And then as I was studying yoga, I did a module on Ayurveda, which is the sister science to yoga, the, essentially the Indian you know, system, traditional system of medicine. And the premise there is that we are nature. So there are five elements, right? earth, water, fire, air, and ether. They exist outside of us. They also exist inside of us. Each of those elements holds qualities and, and everything in nature ha 
has those qualities. So earth, for instance, is static, heavy. Water is, is wet and cold. Fire is hot, sharp. Air is mobile. It moves and is cold, uh, rough and dry. Ether is subtle and clear. So um, we have within our own constitution, we each have a unique constitution with different levels of those elements. And based on that, we can, when we know ourselves and we understand the qualities of nature, we can tailor our diet and lifestyle to help bring us into balance with our own nature and with nature seasonally. And I love that. Again, it's that connection with nature. So important. And we can really uh, be healthier and come into balance. So, and of course, balance is, it's not being about in balance all the time. It comes and goes. So I love that about Ayurveda. And so I, the other thing I'll say about Ayurveda is it is about the circadian rhythm is really important and the 24 hour light dark cycle. So all that to say that relationship with nature how it all comes together is being in relationship with nature on the water, being in relationship with nature off the water. How are you, do you know yourself? Are you in, do you know nature and your own nature? And are you feeding yourself in a, and I, not just nutritionally, but are you feeding yourself? What experiences are you feeding yourself that actually help you thrive what experiences are you feeding yourself that go against your constitution and uh, keep you th- from thriving? And so when I work with, I have coaching clients, a lot of them are paddlers, but they don't have to be. And I have a wheel that I use and it's eight areas of life, including daily routine, sleep, because sleep is big, nutrition, adventure, self-awareness, you know, uh, uh, mindfulness, boundary setting, because setting boundaries is so important for our health. So that's how it all comes together. For me, it's very holistic. When people ask me, how do you calm your mind down in the, in the middle of a big rapid or at the top of a big rapid, like give me some tips. I always ask them, well, how are you, what is your practice in your daily life to calm yourself down? What is your practice to bring yourself back to center in daily life? We can't expect to be on the river in a high stress environment and then, you know, with a snap of a finger, all of a sudden be skilled at calming ourselves down. So again, it's that hard moves and easy water practice in your life and on the water. Yeah, it's a great metaphor as as well, like for that, you know, and I, I, I wonder how much there's age play into this with experience as well, because I, what a lot of what you're saying resonates. You know, I've, I force is the wrong word, but when I'm out doing difficult or hard things, it's not those things that are the true test. It's have I gone into this ready for what I'm about to do now, which is related to, you know, how do I cope with daily micro, you know, stresses and problems that teach me X, Y, Z, A, B, C, so that I can just snap into a stoic, calm headspace. Mm-hmm. And I think that's increasingly difficult to do in the modern world because of, smartphones, TV, pressure to perform, pressure to be brilliant, pressure to be successful. How? <laughs> yes. And, go on, sorry. Well, I was just going to say with the technology, what you just said, one thing I coach my clients on is create a buffer between you and your phone first thing in the morning. If you do nothing else for your mental agility, try that because it's, 
if you wake up and look at your phone first thing, you're giving your power away to email, social media, whatever it is that you're looking at, when you could instead maybe be expressing gratitude for your life, doing a mindfulness practice, I don't know, brushing your teeth, whatever it is, creating a buffer, that morning routine is so, so important. And, you know, morning after morning, it's like compounding interest, right? So you're either spiking your nervous system first thing in the morning, or you're allowing it to, to slowly wake up. And I think that's, that's huge. I mean, you're going to know so much more about this than me, but I, I'm going to bodge the science of it now, but I read a study a while ago and I can't remember the details because the details didn't matter to me, but I've always been as a professional, a kind of phone addict. The first thing I did was check my emails. The last thing I do is check my emails because need to check there's no problems because then I have to deal with them. And I kind of got around to this headspace of, well, if anything's actually on fire, somebody will probably call. And also maybe my life and my sanity is more important than something being on fire a long way away that doesn't really matter. And there was this study that it was about, I think it was half an hour. It was all it took in the morning of like, just don't touch the phone. Just don't touch Mm. it. And before bed, it was like two hours. But this is, you know, personal anecdotally, but I've found now I try not to touch my phone for an hour when I wake up. And sometimes that's because I want to engage with my child and not be that parent. But also it's for me. I'll have a coffee in the garden. I'll look out the window as I'm washing up from the night before, whatever it might be. In the last two hours, I might read a book or look out of a window or think about something and I guess I'm lucky because expeditions have taught me that. Like I can't scroll Instagram on an expedition. That's right. You know, and that's why. Yes, I love that. And that's why introducing folks to these adventure sports, ad- introducing folks to nature, is so important because it does create a space. And one of the trips that I love is uh, a trip. I every two years. I do a, an expedition on a, a river called the Maine Salmon with clients. It's not a high level, um, like class class river. The The idea is exactly that. There is no cell service in the middle of Idaho. <laughs> and so once you put on the river, you just put your phone away, except to take pictures or video. And uh, it is so healing for folks. And we really do realize, or anytime I've put on the Grand Canyon, I've run the Grand Canyon three times now. And, you know, we're out there 16 days or 21 days. And every time right before I go out, I say, oh my gosh, what if this happens? What if this happens? I'm not going to know. And it's like so stressful. And then you get off the river and it's like, well, nothing mind blowing happened. (laughs) And even if it did, there is nothing you could do about it. Right. So then it's okay. What's happening now in, in this present moment? How, what am, how am I going to respond? So. Yeah. The world tends to just carry on turning. That's right. That's kind of, right. And yeah. Well, I just wonder whether or not, I mean, it's the term that I kind of just use for myself, but whether or not you think like ego death plays into this and kind of like killing the ego and learning that I mean this in a wholly positive way and I should find a better way to explain it. But like, we're not quite as important as we think we are in a really good way. Yep. Yeah, it's true. And there is nothing like going on one of these river trips or expeditions like you're talking about coming back and being like, well, everyone just 
my business survived, <laughs> my family's okay, you know, yeah. And I think that is, uh, you know, we all, we all are important because we are a contribution to the people around us and our communities. And, and we can remove ourselves and we don't think that, or we aren't as important as we think we are. There's a difference. Cause I think sometimes we don't really take in that we are a contribution to people, if that makes sense. So it's not that people don't miss us. Like there is a missing. And at the same time, the things that we think are important about us being around are not the important things. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah. But, you know, and I think also with, um, you know, killing the ego, the other thing I think is important with adventure sports and on the river, you know, I've lost a few friends to the river and, you know, we are all going to die. And I think that that's the other thing that I think the river also brings us face to face with. And, you know, until you, there is no way to fully prepare or to know, there's no way to say like, Oh yeah, I'm okay with that. I do appreciate that. I mean, it's weird to say that I appreciate that it has me grapple with that, even though I don't appreciate it because it's no fun to lose friends. Um, but I think that, you know, from the spiritual perspective as well, yoga, Ayurveda, that is, you know, something that we're asked to grapple with. So, and we all grapple with it in different ways. So. For sure. And yeah. so how, I'm always interested when you, you know, whenever I meet kind of people who've got it kind of worked out and are switched on and practice it and teach it, how good are you at this? At, at what exactly? At staying mindful, conscious, aware, in flow, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you have good days and bad days or do you just tend to oh. nail it now? Oh, no, definitely. <laughs> definitely bad days. I think that, you know, I think what I've grappled with is I want to do things right and I want to do things well and I want to be liked. And I think we all want to be right. And I think that part of being mindful is, is being in the present moment with what's happening now and also not being too hard on yourself while being in the present moment. That can be very difficult. Yeah, it is, especially for high-performing folks. The other thing, I think I am good at coming back and being present. I think that's what makes me a good instructor, teacher, coach, um, is because I you can know all of the teaching theory, all of the fancy gear, all the fancy techniques, but if you if you don't have any human skills and are not able to be with yourself and with the person, and if you're not able to be with the other person, then none of that really matters. Yeah. And so I think being 
being okay with silence, (laughs) being okay with admitting mistakes, being okay with accepting what is and separating what's going on from the story that you're telling yourself about what's going on. I think that helps me a lot with being mindful is, okay, this is happening. These are the facts. For instance, if I take a swim on the, on the river where like I, I first time, you know, I don't know, get into a hole, can't roll, pull my skirt, my, I, I swim to shore, my friends swim, get my, help me get my gear. That's what happened. The story I'm telling myself is I'm a crappy kayaker. Why am I out here? I can't believe that is so embarrassing that that happened. No one's going to want to paddle with me anymore. But none of that is the truth. That's the story I'm telling myself. And I think most of our suffering comes from when we collapse what happened, what's happening with the story we're telling ourselves about what's happening. And it's really important. What helps me be mindful is to pull those things apart because then I'm present to what's actually happening, not the story that I'm telling myself about what's happening. So I think that's important. But yeah, I mean, no one, no one is perfect. I mean, balance is not about I mean, just like the river, there's ups and downs, troughs and peaks. I mean, that's how I view it. Sometimes the river is like super quiet, peaceful. Sometimes the the river is super, is moving and and scary, whatever. That's the story, but it's like, you know, vigorous, let's say. And uh, sometimes you get caught in an eddy and you have to stop. Sometimes you're in the flow. And I guess back to your question, that is what I love about the river the most is that it is a metaphor for life. Sometimes you're in the flow, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're at the peak and sometimes you're in the trough. Sometimes you're upright, sometimes you're upside down. Uh, What I like to tell my students is I ask them like, what's the number one rule about riding a roller coaster? And they're always like, put your hands up or, you know, I don't know, scream. And I'm like, no, don't get off until the ride is over, (laughs) right? Because you've got to, you can have these ups and downs through life or through anything you're doing. But at the end, just like on an expedition, you have ups and downs. You're not like stoked the whole time and you're not down in the dumps the whole time worried or, you know, you have these ups and downs at the end, you have this overall feeling and experience, right? So if we get too attached to the ups or too averse to the downs, that's when we suffer a lot. Yeah, I don't know. That was a that was a side tangent. That's a great way to put <laughs> it. No, go. I'm just considering it. So, what is it that motivates you most now? What is it that you want to do and achieve? And what motivates me the most now is definitely helping helping people. Um, it is helping people connect with nature and helping. Actually, what motivates me the most now is helping people to feel powerful, right? To be able to notice when they're in a space of disempowerment, help them understand that the only thing they they can control is how they are responding to what's happening and help them move from a response that is disempowering to a response that is empowering in the moment. Does that last forever? No, right? But in it, 
in the moment, give them strategies so that whether they're on the river, off the river, in a conversation with a family member, on a hike, contemplating life, right? That they can have a strategy to where they feel like they have agency over the direction they want to go. Because if we are going to tell stories, we may as well tell an empowering story. Yeah, it gets into like armchair philosophy, but it's the, you know, it's the <laughs> classics, right? It's, um, oh, I'm not going to go too cliche, but we do get to this. I, I would never have agreed with this 10 years ago. And lots of people won't yeah. agree with me now. I don't know if you will. I suspect you will, but I might be wrong. I think we do get to choose how we react to things and how we frame things. And I yeah. think that takes some training to like look at a profoundly negative experience or what could be a negative experience and view it as positive. Yeah. It's all mine. Why didn't you believe in that? Uh, why wouldn't you have believed it 10 years ago? Oh, well, it gets, it gets deep and heavy and personal. Well, because I had horrendous okay. negative self-talk and mm-hmm. I was very emotional but not aware of why and all the vulnerability that I was hiding because I am a man and I thought I was supposed to. And yeah. then... I'm now getting really good and I feel like I can say that, you know, it's taken a lot of training and I'm getting really good at framing what I would have looked at as negative experiences as positives, growth moments, you know. Okay, so we messed, even if it's, okay, I messed up. Well, why did I mess up? What happened? Oh, that was an accident. Well, let's not do that again. Hey, this is part of the journey, isn't it? Because we're learning how to not mess these things up and God, I'm so much better at this thing now than I was 10 years ago. And it's okay that I messed up because, you know, that's part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. What I hear in all of that too is that you're no longer equating your self-worth with what you're doing or the outcome of a project or an outcome of a expedition. Or or I, I think... I wouldn't say it's naive of other people. I would be lying if I said other people's opinions didn't matter to me, but I sure. now know whose opinions matter to me. And that's yeah. the boundary thing you were talking about, right? It's like yeah. my, wi- my, my wife's opinion of me matters to me. So if I, if I win an award for a film and have an amazing day and think I'm doing an amazing job and I come home and I'm a bit distant from my kids and I'm short with her, I've failed. I've totally messed up. Like it's, it's priorities, it's whose opinions matter. And, you know, I'm 34, I've got a long way to go and I'm a long way from perfect, a long way. Um, but it's working all of that out, right? And it's that growth mindset, which can sound a bit cheesy and cliche, but the big cheesy yeah. thing is acknowledging that it is all a journey. There is no end goal. I often say to young right. people, I have an intern program and I always say like, there have been like six or seven moments in my career where I thought I'd made it. And I use that term, you know, we think we've made it. And like, it, I don't think it really exists. I don't think anyone's ever made it. You know, it's the law of diminishing returns. You get to the top of a mountain and you're like, cool, what do we do now? Yeah, yep. It's that chop wood, carry water, right? What do you do after enlightenment? You chop wood, carry water. Yeah. Yeah. The... Yeah, I think that the the being hard on ourselves, especially high performers, 
I think taking a look at that is really important. And I was just in one of my instructor trainings talking about that because when we get into our own heads about being hard on ourselves, then who are we thinking about? We're thinking about ourselves, right? So, and that doesn't help anyone, honestly, just being hard on ourselves. And how long do you want to spend in that, right? When you could say, okay, that sucked or whatever. I feel like I sucked in that moment. I can do better. And now I have a, I can move on because I know I have a choice to do better next time. I'm not stuck in that moment for the rest of my life. And I think that's important. Totally. And with the boundaries, and I like to think of the river. So the river exists because of the boundaries, because of the banks. Without the banks, the river wouldn't exist. Within those banks, the river is flowing and doing its thing, very creative, very flowy. And so some folks... I, I imagine your listeners are probably into discipline. Some folks, you know, they think of discipline as a negative thing or boundaries as as mean or hard or whatever. But the boundaries of the river, the banks create the container for the flow. And they create the container for the direction of the flow. So in our lives, what boundaries, what river banks can we set up for ourselves that directs the flow of our attention, our awareness towards what's important to us. And that's really what I hear you say. You know, your family is important to you. Yes, the awards are important also. And, you know, the, 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 your, your family is important. So you're setting up like the phone thing you're talking about. That's going to help you, as you mentioned, spend more time with your, with your, your son, right? Because, because you're setting that boundary directing the flow of your attention towards what's important to you. And I think that the more we can do that, the, I think the happier we can be. And ultimately we create our own happiness and that's true for the river. So you were saying, do you have river time for yourself? It's like, yeah, maybe I'm not paddling for myself as much anymore. I still get a lot of joy. So not still, I get a lot of joy out of the work that I do and the time that I spend on the river at all levels. And how awesome is that versus, for me, versus being someone who's not happy unless they're paddling only the hardest rivers. Well, then I have very small windows for happiness. Yeah, that's the same thing. Like if my window for happiness was if I win the grand prize at a film festival. Like I honestly, right. I, I, I think people are going to feel like this is insincere, but I've been doing this for 15 years now. It just doesn't impact me anymore. I like mm-hmm. I and it's it's so personal. And this is what I think I often talk to people about is like trying to take other people's goals and frame them as your own because you feel like that's what you should be striving for. Yeah. You know, I've just learned now that for me the process is everything. And because I'm an extrovert and because I'm so motivated by I think at my, I'm at my best when I'm functioning as part of a high functioning team. I love mm-hmm. being in that state with high functioning people. Um so I honestly I just don't care about the idea of winning awards anymore. I want to go on more trips, spend more time in a studio or on an expedition doing things I love with people I care about. And that for me is success. And you kind of can't measure it, but it's right. just a feeling rather than a tangible thing I can hold. And, you know, I, without turning it into a self-indulgent ramble, I think that's what I'm often trying to say to people is like, what's your version of that? Yeah. What, what actually motivates you? What do you actually enjoy? And don't say what you think I want to hear. But yeah, I think that's awesome. 
Yeah. It's really profound. And that's what we're talking about with Ayurveda and mind body paddle. How I coach folks is what is important to you? You won't, no one else can live your life. This is it. And you only get one. So what is important to you and what, you know, how are you setting those riverbanks? Where are you directing your flow? Yeah. Ace. And no one else can decide that except for yourself. And, you know, as you're saying, taking in feedback from folks, you know, taking feedback from folks who are supporting the direction of your flow. Yeah. Or who are out there with you in the flow. <laughs> well, that gets into, we probably don't have time for this, but that gets into another big conversation, which it took me ages to work out, which is you can, because I think sometimes we oversimplify it. We're like, these people matter to me. These people don't matter to me. Well, mm -hmm. I have people who matter to me deeply whose opinion of me doesn't really matter to me, if that makes sense. And I have people who really matter to me whose opinion of me really does matter. And that's not about, you know, I don't see that as a good or a bad thing. Like mm -hmm. some of these people are blood relatives or whatever. My relationship with them is so critical to me, but I don't need them. I don't need them to think I'm on the right path or need them right. to be impressed by me. Right. But that, I mean, this gets into a whole thing around working class masculinity, which is, you know, making a film about that. So I'll save you the speech. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's just like when I was, you know, my parents disappointed that I was now becoming a raft guide, but they were able to support me in their way and I could still carry on. Yeah. 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 I have to think about that one a lot more, but I think that, I think the important part too is you get to choose, you get to choose what feedback you're taking in and what, what feedback you're not. Yeah. And I recognize how easy all of this is to say, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it's much harder to practice. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, I'm very conscious of time. I am, um, always end these podcasts with the same two questions. Okay. Um, the first is what scares you? Hmm. I think a recurring fear for me is not being good enough. And that is also what drives me to do what I do so that I'm scared of not being, who am I to be on this podcast? Who am I to, uh, teach other people to coach other folks. And that little self-doubt comes up a lot. And that's why I keep doing what I'm doing so that I can be afraid and do it anyway. And if I, again, if I'm contributing to folks, if, if I'm being, being of service, then that keeps me showing up. And what brings you hope? Uh, what brings me hope is the younger generation of paddlers that I see, whitewater paddlers and young men, I'm teaching an instructor course right now that has four, uh, you know, 18 year old young men in it. And they are willing to be vulnerable and have conversations that I never had with uh, young when I was their age paddling at a high level. And so that brings me a lot of hope. The, the younger generation's willingness to be vulnerable, to self-assess, to think differently, that brings me a lot of hope. Amazing. 
We'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate you. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.